I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on January 24th of 2011, under the headline, Vanport Houses Floated Like Life Rafts in Catastrophic Flood. Here we go. One sunny, beautiful day in May, 63 years ago, a wall of water more than a dozen feet tall roared through a broken dike and filled up the community of Vanport, Oregon, population 18,500, with 15 to 20 feet of river water. When the floodwaters had receded and authorities were able to fully assess the damage, they found that just 25 people had died. Put another way, a Vanport resident's chance of dying in that flood was 0.135%, fewer than 1 in 700. Well, that's still a lottery that none of us would ever want to play. But it pales by comparison to the death toll from similar floods, especially the one that wiped out the lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. What saved Vanport from a similar fate? There was a lot of luck involved, for sure. Many people were gone for the weekend, and it didn't happen at night. But the one most people don't know about is the most unlikely sounding of them all. Shoddy construction. It's a cinch that if the apartment buildings at Vanport had not been slapped together in great haste during wartime, the death toll would have been higher. Possibly even much higher. Here's the story. Vanport was cranked out in a wink by crews hired by Henry J. Kaiser, who desperately needed housing for workers at his shipyards, which at the time were dropping 441-foot Liberty ships into the water at a rate of more than two a week. It was planned and built with surprising thoughtfulness, considering the circumstances. Its newly minted school district was in many ways the envy of the state, and Kaiser successfully fought the city of Portland's plan to not include a fire station there. But few of its residents seemed to like it. The buildings were so cheaply built they didn't even have concrete foundations, and sound passed through the thin walls with ease. The development was surrounded on all sides by 20-foot-tall dikes built to hold back the Columbia River when it flooded, so there were no sunsets in Vanport. One never got to look at the horizon. And the walls held noise in like a big bowl. At its wartime peak, Vanport was home to about 40,000 people. After the war, the numbers dropped, and after some fluctuation, stabilized at 18,500. With the end of hostilities, the town became a source of low-income housing for the Portland area, and the community changed in several interesting ways. First, nobody in Vanport was a VIP. There was no Snob Hill. Every Vanport resident paid $7 a week for a studio apartment or $11.55 for a three-bedroom unit. No one owned his or her own place. Almost everyone had kids, and the school district tied them tightly together as a community. And it was in this egalitarian incubator that real ethnic diversity really started coming to the state of Oregon, the only state in the Union that was originally admitted with a no-blacks-allowed exclusion law. Many of the workers who came to Portland to work in the shipyards were black. When the war ended, the other workers mostly wanted to go home, but thousands of black workers never wanted to see Birmingham or Atlanta or the Mississippi Delta again. 
In Vanport, they'd tasted a life where white people, while still not exactly welcoming, for the most part at least didn't openly abuse and persecute them. So of the 18,500 people living in Vanport, more than 35% were black. This became particularly important when the flood sent these people out into the Portland community and gave non-black residents a moral mandate to help them. Of course, not all white Portlanders respected that moral mandate, but many did. White residents brought black families into their homes while the Red Cross sought permanent places for them. For most people involved, this was the first time they'd ever mixed with members of the other quote-unquote race. That's not to say that all was sweetness and light on the race relations front, though. But under the circumstances, black families probably couldn't have asked for a better introduction to the community. The status of Vanport residents as renters of modest means meant few were motivated or had time to make their town a showplace, nor did the shoddy construction inspire much pride in residents. But something else happened after the war that saved the town from becoming a slum, too. A state college extension campus was set up there to serve returning veterans. And thus was born Portland State University, and thus did Vanport start acquiring the tone of a college town. If you've ever wondered why PSU's newspaper is called the Vanguard, well, now you know. But it all ended just after 4 p.m. on May 31, 1948, when a massive railroad fill gave way and let the river in through the dike. It took about 20 minutes for the river to get from the breached wall through the swamp and slough and into town, and this was one important reason for the high survival rate. Still, when it got there, most residents were still in their cars trying to get out. The town had only one exit. In a matter of minutes, the place was under 15 feet of water, and uh, the houses were all floating. That's right. The lack of concrete foundations turned every single one of those apartment buildings into a life raft bobbing on the surface. They floated nicely, more or less upright, with the water level roughly just below the level of the upstairs windows. The surprisingly low number of casualties, along with the weeks-long wait for the river levels to go down so that the city could be thoroughly searched, helped inspire some of the dramatic rumors about the flood. That the government was secretly covering up the deaths of hundreds by loading them on ships. That the bottom floor apartments were, quote, clogged with bodies. That a school bus had been seen with the limbs and heads of dead children trying to escape. Stuff like that. The rumors got just enough traction to be annoying. Most locals knew better, especially the Vanport residents themselves. Today, what used to be Vanport is the home of the Portland International Raceway and the old racing track at Portland Meadows. Vanport College, now PSU, is the biggest college in the state now. And Portland has become a modern cosmopolitan metropolis that's unusually comfortable with its multi-ethnic population, all things considered. In large part, the city has Vanport to thank for the progress it's made. Vanport only existed for six years before it was swept away, but few people realize how important the place actually was. Key sources in this story have included works by Manly Mabin and Stuart Holbrook. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. 
This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Vaccara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) 